I know first episodes are always kind of awkward to begin with, but hopefully I can reach an audience that will work with me until I find my groove. That being said, this podcast is about Star Wars. Specifically, I'm a Legends fan. Don't get me wrong, canon is great, canon has amazing content, However, there's something so appealing about lying next to the broken shards of characters that authors sculpted by hands only for Disney to knock down those beautiful sculptures. I still have hope though. Disney has a wonderful opportunity to make these characters whole again. So let's get into it. Dawn of Legends. This name is special to me because it relates to the foundation I am building for this podcast. I'm doing an in-depth analysis of Legends Media. We're starting out with my favorite Legends era thus far, Dawn of the Jedi. This is the first era in chronological order. There are three comic books, two short stories, and one novel in this story set. This era is very unique because it is Legends Media published entirely after Disney bought Lucasfilm in October of 2012. The first comic book was published in December of 2012, and the era concluded in November 2013. I should mention that Legends Media is still being produced, specifically through the video game Star Wars The Old Republic. While I am grateful that Dawn of the Jedi was published, it also comes with a caveat. The largest source material, Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void, by Tim Lebon, was meant to be a novel trilogy. Only the first novel was published because there's so much of the story that was cut, you may feel like you are missing out. Welcome to being a Legends fan. This episode will focus on giving context to this era, as well as getting into the short story by John Ostringer, Eruption. Before I start though, I would like to make a statement. I am a Christian, and that means that my content will have a Christian perspective to some extent. I will not be talking about my religion and what it means to me because that is not what this podcast is for, just as I will not be talking about politics, current events, or aspects of my personal life. That being said, Christianity has no room for hate against any group, regardless of perceived sins of the group. I am disgusted by people that are proud that they got banned from social media for hate speech while putting a Bible verse in their bio. It is foolish to hate a person and use Christianity to justify it. I will never support anyone that gives unnecessary hate especially if they are using their platform. And to my listeners, I pray that you will always bring to attention if anyone is using my name and my platform to spread hate. Additionally, I have been using personal social media accounts for almost eight years, and I was an impressionable, naive teenager at the beginning of it. I'm sure that if someone found those personal accounts, over the years they would find content that supported ideologies that I no longer support. Thank you for listening to my statement. I know that it may seem tedious to some, and many people told me that I didn't need to make that statement. However, too many people get their platform taken away because they weren't honest from the start. I only want my audience to be made of people that agree with my stance on hate and accept that I have and will make mistakes and that I have and will continue to grow from them. Before going into eruption, I want to give some context to the Jedi mindset and how it is different from the Jedi and Sith mindsets. In the Star Wars universe, the Force is an energy field that connects all life in the universe. When I was first introduced to the Star Wars universe, I was given the most rudimentary understanding of the Force. The dark side is bad and the light side is good. What I've learned though is that the Force is not some scale of good and bad. 
Star Wars is heavily influenced by Asian cultures. Specifically, I see similarities between how the Force is described in the Star Wars universe and aspects of yin and yang. I do not claim to be an expert on Chinese ideologies, and I have only a rudimentary understanding of yin and yang. From my understanding though, it is a concept of opposites that are complementary and cannot exist without the other, like day and night. This is how the Jedi describe the Force and the ways that they channel it. While the Jedi and Sith, as well as other Force users, do recognize that there is duality within the Force, they do not take advantage of that duality. In fact, they avoid accessing the Force with duality in mind. The Jedi, on one hand, channel the Force through the light side. By channeling through the light side of the Force, the users focus on controlling their emotions. Their power comes from their knowledge and control of themselves. On the other hand, the Sith channel the Force through the dark side. Users do this by focusing on their emotions to channel the dark side. The most common emotion used to channel the dark side is anger, but using other emotions is possible. There are issues with both sides of the Force. The longer a person focuses on the light side, like Grandmaster Yoda did, the more likely they are to become complacent. In Grandmaster Yoda's case, after centuries of serving the Jedi Order, he was no longer concerned with true peacekeeping. As Count Dooku pointed out in Darth Plagueis, the Jedi were failing to keep the peace, which is why he so easily succumbed to the dark side when the opportunity arose. While this isn't normally a problem with individual Jedi, it can cause problems over time as generations of Jedi become more complacent. The opposite is true for the Sith. When a person channels the dark side, they focus on using their emotions, generally anger, to fuel their power. Fairly quickly, a person's morals will begin to crumble. We can see this with Anakin Skywalker. Once submitted to the dark side, his morals almost flipped. The Jedi realize that both of these are true and use the dark and light side in balance. While the dark side erodes a person's morals, the light side builds of complacency. Together, they keep a person's morals intact while protecting them from being comfortable with injustices. I will point out that the Jedi are different from what many people think of as Grey Jedi. The Jedi are their own order and seek to find natural balance. Grey Jedi are, generally speaking, described as people that leave the Jedi Order and may borrow aspects of the dark side or are more accepting that the dark side is part of nature. Two examples of Grey Jedi are Ahsoka Tano, who left the Jedi Order and distanced herself from its practices, and Qui-Gon Jinn, who considered the Living Force his guide instead of the light side exclusively. With this in mind, let's begin with Eruption by John Ostrander. This directly leads to The Beginning of Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void by Tim Levon. It was originally published as a short story for promotion purposes in the magazine Star Wars Insider issue 141. Just a week later, Into the Void would be available for purchase. Now the short story is included in any copy of Into the Void. The short story begins with Hawk Ryo, a Jedi ranger on the moon world of Zarist. Zarist orbits a gas giant called Obri, which is located on the Tython system. For those that don't know, the Star Wars galaxy is similar to our own in that it is in a spiral. The center of that spiral in the Star Wars universe is called the Deep Core. Systems of the Deep Core and planets within those systems tend to be more complex and harder to travel between because they are so close to the center. The Tython system is the second closest to the galactic center and was the birthplace of the Jedi, followed by the Jedi Order. 
Obrey was far from the system's sun, making the moon orbiting it cold. Most of Zerist heat and light came from the reflected light of Obrey. However, that still wasn't enough for it to be considered livable for most humanoids, so most towns on Zerist were near active volcanoes. Predictions for volcanoes exploding were often accurate and were made in advance, so citizens were normally safe. One such evicted city was Canaan, where Hawk Raya was surveying from within the city. The buildings were generally built low to the ground for heating purposes, with the tallest building in Canaan only five stories tall. On this building, on this building, Hawk saw two Twi'leks like himself, a type of humanoids with two tails sprouted from their head that normally stopped below their shoulders. Hawk noticed that they were armed and used his comm, a communication device similar to a cell phone, to call his partner, Lannery Brock. Lannery was in a delegation meeting between two of the social classes on Zerist. The Desane Mining Company, which mined the gases of Obrey, was run by the Desane family. Let me add a quick note about the Desane family before I continue. The rich of Zerist lived in caverns below the surface that were warmer and safer from volcanoes, with dull light provided by natural minerals. The Desane are described as pale, and I can only wonder if they are paler than the working class because they do not go out into the sunlight. Let's continue. The company's labor workers were demanding a voice within the company. Although pay was generous, conditions were hard. The solution was decided between the two leaders of the groups. Emin Desane, the leader of the Desane family, and Arco Santis, leaders of the worker. Their children, Brom Santis and Oma Desane, would be married so Arco's son could be a voice for the workers within the Desane family. However, Oma was missing, leading to arguments between the parties. They blamed each other for her disappearance. As they were arguing, Lannery answered the comm from her partner, Hawk. He informed her that during his scouting, he found a ship that was registered to Baron Valnos Ryo, his brother who was involved with criminal activities on two other moons of Obri, but had never been able to do so with Zerist because of the Desane family. Hawk put together that his brother must have orchestrated the kidnapping to devalue Desane mining. He told her that he had found where he believed Omar was being held and suggested that Lannery keep the parties under control. The call ended and Lannery decided that the best way to prevent violence is to be violent. She used her slug thrower, which in layman's term is a gun, and shot three slugs, or bullets to us, into the ceiling. The party stopped arguing to stare at her. Not only was she using one of her weapons to get their attention, but she was a Jedi. Not much was known about them to those that did not live on Tython. They knew that she could be dangerous in many ways that they could not defend against. She placed the slug thrower down again and told them of her experience on Skagora, a planet in the Tython system. Unfortunately, Skagora was not successful in negotiation, but she was hoping this could be different. Negotiations continued at a quieter volume. Hawk had approached the five-story building. He knew one of the guards was directly above him and the other would be on the other side of the roof. He didn't know exactly where in the building Oma was being held, so he knew that he would either have to kill or silence guards along the way, or else they might kill her if they knew he was there. He was worried about using violence, since violence fuels the dark side. Previously, he had become off-balance in the Force, leaning too far into the dark side. The Jedi Council had sent him to Bogan, 
one of the moons of Python, to meditate on the light side of the Force. Bogan is a moon that encompasses the dark side, while Ashla, the other moon of Typhon, encompasses the light. Python itself represents balance. While it may seem confusing that the Council sent someone leaning too far into the dark side to a place that encompasses the dark side, the intention is that during their time there, a person can meditate fully on Ashla while having their dark side desires be fulfilled by Bogan. We will see more of this in the comics, specifically in the issue focusing on the prisoner of Bogan. He took out his sword, which should be noted is a regular sword made from metal and not a lightsaber, and used the force to jump to the roof. He killed the closest guard instantly, then prepared to kill the next one. He used the force to pull the guard into his sword. Hawk recognized him as the personal guard of his brother, a twilight by the name of Dion Arla. Hawk took a moment to become centered in the forest again before continuing his search for Oma. Two stories down, he found two large rooms which he assumed were dormitories for workers since there were cots. I did find the phrasing funny because he assumed that they were unmarried workers because the cots were disorganized and there was trash on the floor. Regardless, when he looked through the door of one of the rooms, he found Oma bound and gagged on a cot close to the door. There was a guard over her and Hawk felt through the forest two other guards on the opposite side of the room. The other two guards were discussing, rather angrily, why they were still there in lieu of the impending volcano eruption. One of the guards explained that they would have already been done but that the Jedi negotiator, which we know as Lannery, was a potential threat. They had a plan to take her out, though, and the guard said that they would kill Amasu. Hawk decided that warning Lannery would be too risky, given his proximity to the guards and how loud the comp would be. He had to concentrate on how to get Oma out alive. With three guards, he would not be able to kill them one by one without risking Oma's life. He was planning a distraction when the volcano provided one for him. Hawk ran into the room, knife and sword in hand, and threw his knife on the guard closest to Oma. With that guard out of the equation, he turned to focus on the other two. He had precious seconds to react, and he used them effectively. By the time he was within a few feet of them, they had drawn their weapons, but he rolled under their fire and used the momentum to lift himself into the air over their heads. He kicked one directly in the nose, then, as he landed, pushed his sword into his chest. The other guard he killed by using the force to thrust him through the window. Because Star Wars Legends media is so expansive, there has to be overlap of dialogue, but I feel like Ostrander was referencing A New Hope when Hawk said to Oma, I'm Jedi Ranger, Hawk Ryo, and I've been sent to rescue you. It's not word for word, no, but surely it's a reference, right? Hawk picks up Oma and takes her to the roof. Because there was so much ash in the sky, he could not see, so he used the force to guide his jumps across the buildings to get back to the caverns where someone was attempting to assassinate Lannery. As the negotiations continued, at a civil level, as Lannery pointed out, a servant served her wine. She knew the specific wine well because it was a drink she had on Skygora during her time there. Because of that, she knew there was something off about the way it smelled. She turned to the servant, picked him up with the force, and dropped him onto the table. She told him to drink it willingly or that she would make him taste it. She noted within the story that she would not actually be able to make him do this 
mentally, but many people believe that Jedi could do so. This is very interesting to me because centuries later, Jedi mind tricks were a skill that some Jedi trained in. However, these small suggestions only worked on weak-minded people. The servant, in fear for his life, admitted the wine was poison. Lannery uncovered him as the traitor that must have helped Hawk's brother in the kidnapping of Amal. Emin Desain questioned him. After all, he was a loyal servant that was almost considered family. The servant, revealed to be named Betelo, said that it was exactly that reason, because he was not considered family, which is why he did it. Hawk returned with Omaha while Betelo was, assumingly, taken away. However, another problem arose. Omaha refused to marry Brom. While arguing continued, Lannery and Hawk discussed it quietly. Lannery said my favorite line of the short story at this point, he shouldn't be a clause in a treaty. Of course, Lannery immediately includes Oma and Brom in her new solution, meaning that she is, in fact, still a clause in a treaty. However, I digress. In order to get the attention of her audience, Lannery again shoots her slug thrower three times into the ceiling. Once again, the volume lowers. Instead of marrying the young teenagers, she suggested, Instead, they should foster them, letting the teenagers spend six months at one house and six months at the other. This way, Brom would be able to speak for his family and the workers, while Oma could learn firsthand of the conditions her laborers were working in. Seemingly, this deal worked for everyone, and specifics were settled. Lannery was summoned to Tython for a mission that is covered in Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void. Hawk would go to Fury's Gate, which was the furthest planet from the sun, Tython system, where the rest of the inhabited worlds in the Tython system had a jointly maintained station to send out ships into the galaxy. Mission accomplished, they said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. We will continue next week into the first chapter of Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void. If you have any questions or would like me to clarify any part of this episode, leave it in the comments or reviews of any of my socials. May the force be with you all.